0: Thank you, Snodderly family. If you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn together to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. It's always a beautiful thing to see a family singing together. And I love, as you were listening carefully there, we're chronicling the effect of the gospel. Lostness, salvation, just the glorious ability now that we have to approach the throne of grace. And I love rehearsing the gospel. Beautiful hymn, And Can It Be. Let's find our place in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16 this morning. We will read verse 16 down through verse 1 all the way down through verse 12 as we prepare for the word of God this morning. Matthew chapter 16 verse 1, Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, don't let that be lost on you, these two unusual groups coming together. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, Jesus, asked That he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, Well, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And then in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Verse 5. Now when his disciples had come together to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they reason among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. In the implication that he is saying this. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets that you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up, How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But what I spoke to you about was beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then finally, verse 12, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, this is the word of the Lord. It's interesting that you can often tell a lot about people, how much they hate someone or a group of people, by who they're willing to join forces with to forsake their common differences, who they're willing to come together with to oppose that person or kingdom or enemy. You can tell a lot about people by who they're willing to come together with, those who are formerly their enemies but enemies joining enemies to come together against a more common enemy, willing to put their differences aside for a common goal. Normally, they're not in alignment, but they come together in alignment to, to uh, amplify their forces, if you will. Well, our text opens with this as the main point here in verse 1. The text tells us that right off the bat, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together. to to Christ. So let's set a little bit of the context. Last week together we were in chapter 15 and we were looking in verse 21 through 28 at the remarkable conversion and miracle of the Gentile Canaanite woman who came to Jesus, chapter 15, verse 21. What we did not take time to look at was the following section that comes just after it. and I'll touch on it briefly going back to chapter 15, verse 22. We see another example at the very end of chapter 15 of Jesus performing what we would call a mass scale miracle. Thousands of people witness, thousands of people affected. This is called more commonly the feeding of the 4,000. And the key distinction between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 is just a few very small things. And it's more than the five and four, (laughs) more than the 5,000 and the 4,000. The feeding of the 5,000 gets far more attention because it's the first of that type of miracle. It's a larger miracle, but it is also to the Jews. And As we've seen in the last two weeks, that Jesus has now turned from the rejection of the Jews, from the rejection of his people, to ministering to the Gentiles. We saw that last week in that he went out of his way, and really the only time that the Gospels record that Jesus left his hometown circumference of ministry, his radius of ministry, to go up into a foreign place up on top of the mountain to specifically minister to this Canaanite Syrophoenician woman. We saw that last week. Following that miracle, Jesus then comes down and he performs the feeding of the 4,000. So here's our point. Very same exact miracle, almost to a T, except different people affected. Jesus ministering to, witnessing to, preaching the gospel to physically helping the gentiles in their afflictions and they were witnesses to his messiahship his lordship over the natural realm as he performs this miracle as we move into chapter 16 it's almost as if the rendering of the text is you remember the last time we saw these two different groups was at the very beginning of chapter 15. if you remember i'll just stir your remembrance the scribes and the pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders? Why do they transgress the tradition of the elders and not wash their hands before they eat bread? And remember, we said, this, this is your question. This is the upper echelon of the leadership of the Pharisees and the scribes who've come from Jerusalem. You can ask Jesus anything, and you're going to ask him that. If you remember, that was that message. We now come to this very similar scene, but don't let it be lost on you. The last time, Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. We need to note that that's within the same group. They are in alignment. But here in chapter 16, verse 1, our text tells us that now the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. So what I'm trying to paint for us here and help us to realize is that this is a big deal. These are two factions that would never eat bread together, would not share a meal together, would not fellowship together. We think of polarized groups in our modern day that we live in today. We can give all types, and we're not going to waste time doing that. But just imagine just groups that do not get along. Here you would have, in a sense, the conservative or the ultra-conservative Pharisees, and underneath that would be the scribes, those who copy out the law, those who are the men of the law. And here we have the more liberal branch, the Sadducees. The Sadducees are those that we have not touched on hardly at all in this particular study of Matthew's gospel. Here we see this being the first real interaction that Jesus has, not just with the Pharisees, but now the Sadducees. They come together in alignment, in a force. The Pharisees being ultra conservative, so ultra-conservative, as we've seen, that they equate their traditions as paramount and parallel with Scripture or even greater than Scripture. The Sadducees, though, were the liberal side. What do we mean by that? Well, according to John chapter 20, verse 30, the Sadducees denied the miraculous, much like modern-day liberals would, we would say, do. We don't use that term in the sense of political terms although the same terms are used but let's try to narrow our scope here this morning we're not talking about the political realm although I'm sure we can make plenty of parallels to the political realm but speaking within the religious realm even of Christianity we would say a liberal is someone who denies what, what the Sadducees denied they deny the miraculous of the Gospels the miraculous nature of of Jesus's ministry, they would admit and say, "Well, Jesus is a good man. He's a moral man. He's a great teacher. We need to be like Jesus." But the extent of being like Jesus is to break bread and feed the poor and clothe the sick, that type of thing. Um, no, no difference than say Red Cross uh, or just normal everyday outreach mercy ministries that would not claim the person and work of Christ. Well, so who are the Sadducees? Well, they deny the miraculous according to John twenty. Uh, they also deny the resurrection in Acts chapter 23, verse 8. They are those who deny the resurrection. According to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the Sadducees, according to Paul, deny the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, verse 1, the Sadducees deny a personal God, a knowable God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we find that the Sadducees deny the, the creative handiwork of God, creation order work of God. We also find that they deny both heaven and hell in Scripture, Revelation twenty-two fourteen. 14. They also deny salvation and the person and work of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. At this point, we could keep going. We'll just simply stop and say the question that we need to ask the Sadducees is, what do you guys believe in? And oftentimes that is the case, isn't it? We pass by uh, different types of mainline churches and maybe around our greater town, maybe here in Roane County or in greater Knoxville. And they're more known for, actually the question is, is what do you actually believe in because of all the things they, they do not believe in? Well, now we come to our passage and we find that this group has been working while Jesus has been away. Chapter 16, verse one, we find that they're together. Uh, They were not impressed, they were not successful At chapter 15, verse 1. So now they go to their enemies and they form an alliance. They're tired of Jesus. They're tired of his ministry. They're tired of his preaching. And they're plotting to kill him. We've already seen that previously that the Pharisees are plotting to try. How can we get rid of this blasphemer? Now, as we study this passage, we're going to frame our thoughts this morning around four headings. Number one, the demand in verse 1. Number two, the discernment that Jesus requires, verses 2 through 3. Then thirdly, the denunciation, also found in verse 3 and then moving into verse 4. And then lastly, in verse 4, the declaration, the declaration. So first of all, I want us to note this morning the demand that is given to Jesus, found in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came... Now notice the Holy Spirit giving us the heart behind their actions here and testing Him. They came to Jesus desiring to test Him, to tempt Him, asked how that, he, asked that he, sh- he would show them a sign from heaven. Well, the first thing the Holy Spirit shows us is the heart behind this question that is asked. Kenneth Wiest translates this verse in this way. They came, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they demanded... That's the tone of the text in the original. They demanded that he furnish them a sign in the heavens, a specific heavenly miracle for their approval. If we understand verse 1 correctly, they're coming in judgment against Christ. They're coming as judges looking to approve his ministry. And they just need one more thing. It's a sign. Not the signs that he has already shown them. Not the miracles and the works that he's already performed. Friends, I just want to remind all of us here this morning, the invitation is open to come to Christ. The invitation is always open to come to Christ. But I would warn you this morning, beware of making demands of him. You do not come to our sovereign Lord making demands of him. He makes demands of Of you. He will always make demands of us, not the other way around. For example, later on, Matthew chapter 16, just drop your eyes down to verse 24, we have what's one of the hallmark discipleship passages. We call them the discipleship calls of Jesus because they're monumental. They're a part of what we understand it, what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 24, Jesus says to those listening to him, If anyone desires to come after me, Let him first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What we find in this text and others like it is that Jesus will demand of us everything. Jesus requires our all, and it begins with repentance and rest and faith in him and him alone. You do not demand of Jesus, and a true disciple understands this, but religious hypocrites or deceivers do not. They come to Jesus as if they are the judge upon him and his ministry. Today, they come to the word of God as if they are the judge of the word. Prove to me one more thing. maybe in an intellectual argument, for those of us who've tracked with us on the Winstonite Bible studies of the book of Psalms, we see some some parallels here. The last couple of Psalms that we looked at, 14 and 15 and 16, of those who who speak in regards to God, not believing in His existence and not requiring of Him to give an account. That's what these religious hypocrites do as well. So we see here in verse 1 the demand. And this demand reveals a few things about who they are. First, it reveals their unbelief. They're asking for more signs. And what that says is they do not believe in what they've already seen. If you, if you remember, in the last couple of weeks, we've said this kind of principle is that light, when it comes to divine light and spiritual light, that we come and bow in humility to the sovereign word of God, to the light of the world. And when we obey the light of the world, He gives more light. But when we come and deny the light that is given, listen, He's not giving you more light. You do not come boastfully to Christ. You do not come arrogantly to Christ. James 4, those who come to him in that fashion are resisted and turned away. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The reality is, is Christ has given miracle upon miracle, sign upon sign. And friends, we look around our world today and we see the goodness of Christ, the grace of Christ in our lives. He, if he never showed us one more ounce of goodness and grace, we should worship him all the days of our life. They're disregarding all the miracles he's already shown them. And they're dissatisfied. Their request here for a sign of Christ is is another way of saying that we don't like you, Jesus. We're not satisfied with who you say you are. We don't like your miracles. Now notice, as we have constantly said, they're not asking for a miracle as if he's not shown any. They're just saying they want a specific one. They want another one. They, They want something of their choosing, their terms. They're coming, making their assessments and their judgments upon Christ in reality what we see here in the text is that they are hanging in the balance and they are found wanting in the language of Daniel chapter 4 but they're coming to Christ and saying Christ we hear your message we see your miracles and we have put you into our balance and we have found you wanting and lacking friends we're never on more dangerous ground than we begin to approach divine revelation and the truth of God as if we are in judgment upon him. Listen, we are those who make judgments and assessments every single day. And in those judgments and assessments and the choices that we make every single day, they reveal much about who we are. They reveal much about our value system. For example, Matthew 13:44, remember the man who was like he found the kingdom of God in the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he went and sold all that he had. And people thought he was crazy. Imagine you throwing up a yard sale, and you're selling everything. And people ask you, you know, you have a, a wonderful home, and everything's nice and comfortable, and people ask you what you're doing, and, and you're, you're going to go find a little spot on the side of the hillside up in the mountains somewhere, and it's not glamorous, it's not glorious, it's just, a, just a, a crag in the rocks. They don't understand, but you've discovered gold is there. You see and value and assess differently than than what they understand. That's what Jesus is saying. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he found the one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he has and he's bought it. Well, here we see a different type of assessment taking place than what I've just read to you in Matthew 13. Unbelief assesses and is never satisfied with divine truth or divine evidences. They demand not only a sign here in our text, but they prescribe the terms. Notice in verse 1, Testing Jesus, they asked him now that he would show them a sign, but from heaven. This word sign is a, a literally a heavenly miracle. A sign? Another miracle? You mean like like the feeding of the 5,000? Or the feeding of the 4,000? No, those aren't good enough. So, what about these these other signs that Jesus has done? What about Matthew chapter fourteen, verse thirty-three, where it says the response of those who came recognized him, and they recognized him as the Messiah, and they brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well and whole. We saw last week the beautiful testimony of this Canaanite woman in Matthew fifteen twenty one who recognizes, confesses with faith who he is and what he can do. And here Jesus now comes back to the religious establishment, the Sadducees, the liberals, and the Pharisees, the ultra-conservatives, and they have no belief, no trust, no confession of who he is. Now, that's very important. The last number of weeks, we've been looking at these confessions of faith about who Jesus is, and this is going to be so central to this passage that we'll see coming up in the middle of chapter 16, that Jesus asks His disciples, chapter 16, verse 13, Who do men say that the Son of Man is who I am? This is central. This is what the great debate is. In this time in Jesus' ministry, evidences have been given. Miracles have been performed. And Jesus is going to begin to transition away from all of the signs and wonders to exclusively a teaching ministry. And here's what's so amazing they didn't believe when they saw the signs and wonders. And friends, many of them are going to continue not to believe with just the teaching of divine revelation and truth. Do not be surprised or do not grow discouraged when you do not see fruit at times through your teaching ministry or your giving of the gospel. Friends, stay faithful at it. It is the power of God unto salvation. But the reason I say that is we find that happening even in Jesus' ministry at this specific time and in this place. They're asking of Jesus a sign from heaven. What are they saying? What they're saying is is that Moses performed mighty miracles, some of them even signs from heaven. For example, hell falling out of the, the sky. Joshua and others were allowed to perform miracles on a grand scale that involved the heavens. Jesus, do something different. Do something heavenly. Do a miraculous sign in the heavens. In other words, if you are who you say you are, be like Moses. Be like Joshua. Be like Elisha. Be like Elijah. And show us that you're truly one of our our prophets. That's exactly what Jesus has been proclaiming. And that's what Matthew has wanted us to know. That's what he's been telling the Jewish people. You shall call his name Jesus. He's come to save you. Your king is here. And they say, no, no, no. As we saw in their scripture reading, John chapter 3. John 1 says he came into his own and his own received him not John chapter 3 we see that why do men love darkness rather than the light? It's because their deeds are evil. So, we see they test him and they they tempt him. Before we move on from this first point, we want to ask this question. Who is benefited here if Jesus performs a sign? Who is recognized as an authority? If Jesus simply answers their question and does what they want them to do, all it benefits is just simply them. And it has no actual purpose for any good other than unbelief, further unbelief. You can make a thread like this. All of the previous miracles that Jesus has performed have essentially been mercy miracles. They've all directly benefited people and shown them that Jesus has come to save and to heal in the spiritual realm just like in the physical miracle that he performs but here this is braggadocious this is boastful this is arrogant they simply want to display for the purpose of a display and who does that sound like it has echoes of matthew chapter 4 remember and so satan led jesus up into the wilderness to simply tempt him to display His own glory that was out of the Father's will. Here in these questions that are asked of Jesus, we hear echoes and serpent whispers in the background. This is serious. Number one, the demand. Secondly, the discernment that Jesus requires. Notice, how is he going to respond to this question? This is public. There are many witnesses. There are people witnessing this occasion, this conversation. And Jesus's way of interacting with questions is always fascinating to me, and we learn much from how he thinks, but how he engages with them. Verse two. And Jesus answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, Well, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. What is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is invoking common wisdom. There's a saying maybe you've heard, one commentator phrased it like this, red sky at night is the sailor's delight, red sky at morning is to the sailor take warning. What Jesus is simply saying, you have a natural temporal ability to look at the skies as a general truism or principle and try to determine whether the weather is going to be foul or good, and so thereby you determine whether or not you're going to go through all the effort to get your boat out, to get your jet skis out, and get out on the water, or you have enough wisdom, you have enough discernment not to get all the equipment out, not to make all the hassle to go down to the marina or to the dock and to get out on the water just to simply get caught in a thunderstorm. And good for you. The natural man is wise enough to do that. That's what Jesus is saying. He's, he's invoking a little bit of folk wisdom here. But at the heart of what Jesus is saying is discernment, wisdom, understanding. We, we understand that even the very best of our meteorologists are pretty bad. In fact, we complain about it a lot, don't we? We often say the weather profession, and if anybody in here is in the weather profession, please, know. I got to make this point, but it's nothing personal. We often joke that Only the weatherman can still get it wrong so many times and still have a job, you know. Okay, enough of that. I know I'm offending somebody. We love you, weathermen. That's why we still watch and tune in and, and still listen to what you say. What Jesus is saying is you are better meteorologists than you are theologians. This is a slam to them. We know the struggles that we have even in our best methods to predict the weather. What Jesus is saying is that you have no discernment. You're blind as a bat. And you cannot understand the signs of the time. That leads to verse 3 and 4. Number 3, the denunciation. Notice what he says. You hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. You are a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. Here Jesus is speaking in the spiritual realm. Remember the language of James? To love the world, to allow the love of the world more than love of God, His truth and His word is to commit spiritual adultery. Now as he invokes this phrase, you hypocrites, that's not new. You cannot discern the signs of the times. What Jesus is speaking about here is wisdom, wisdom discernment. The wise man, the spiritual man, has enough understanding to, to see evil and to hide himself. Proverbs 3, verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. Proverbs 27, 12. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, and yet the simple pass on and are punished. So this is wisdom language. But it's even more than that. This goes back even further than that. If you go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 12, Verse 32, Jesus is reminding them of what the Old Testament says. What the law of God says. Here, one of the books of history here, chronicling Israel's history. It is said, 1 Chronicles 12, 32, of the sons or the men of Issachar, that they were men, the Holy Spirit designates this, they were men who had an understanding of the times. To know what Israel, notice here, ought to do. Their chiefs were two hundred, and all their brethren were at their command. Jesus here is, is going all the way back and invoking this Old Testament language that they know very well. And he's saying, the sons of Issachar were noted among the tribes, among the peoples, for their wisdom. Wisdom in what? Particularly in being able to understand reality. They knew God's law, they knew God's truth, and they were able to walk and to live in wisdom and discern the mind of the Lord in light of the truth of of revealed scripture. And they're designated for all time the men of Issachar in such a way that when we say that, it should ring a bell, should, we have to be reminded sometimes, who were the men of Issachar? They were the men who had an understanding of the times. Here Jesus in his rebuke is saying to them, how can you see the unmistakable signs that the kingdom of God is here? John the Baptist began to preach it as my herald and forerunner. The miracles and preaching and my signs all attest that I am the Messiah, the Son of God. You're so full of pride, you're so full of knowledge, and yet you miss the forest for the trees. You cannot see that the kingdom of God is here. Let's just remind ourselves they heard the teaching of John the Baptist. They've heard the teaching of Christ himself. They've seen the mighty signs and and miracles that he's done, all in clear fulfillment of prophecy. And yet every time they hear the truth and they see the miracles, don't miss this, their hearts, instead of growing softened and pliable to the will of God and saying yes to God, what happens here? Their hearts become Harder, hard as stone, unbelief. Friends, that is always happening, by the way. Let me just encourage and remind all of us here this morning that God's word says in the book of Isaiah that his word will not return to him void. It's always at work. It's at work here this morning. The word of God is softening and leading to repentance in some. And for others, you've grown up in the church your whole life. You've seen the works of the Lord. And I don't mean maybe in the same way of like the feeding of the 5,000, but you've seen the Lord move, you've seen the Lord work, you've seen the Lord answer prayers, you've seen the Lord bless. Here's the problem. It's not led to greater obedience in your life. It's not led to greater faith. It's not led to greater uh, trusting in the Lord. It's not led to repentance and obedience. So there's a hardening of heart. There's, there may be a religiousness that's there, but it's a hardenedness that misses Christ and he says you've seen all of this but you are those who do not understand the signs of the times this phrase is deep it's interesting it's much to meditate on as we leave the place this morning is to say Lord particularly of those who lead our homes those who lead our church those who are leaders in the community and and really all of us but beginning with the men and and our leadership just simply saying are we men who understand the times May God give us that wisdom. And here's the good news of the gospel that we have. James chapter 1 says this. Any man who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. May the Lord continue to humble all of us to say regularly, Lord, we need help. We don't know everything. We don't have all the wisdom, but we know where to find it. And we know who to get it from. And we want to be like the men of Issachar who have spiritual discernment. And that leads, lastly, number four, to the declaration that Jesus gives here in verse four. So what is he going to do? They're asking for a sign. He's not going to give them a sign. But then he says this, the declaration, verse four. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Oh, great. Here we go again. You, you don't believe in Jonah in the well, do you? you, you don't, that's just like a story in, in the old. You, you don't believe in that, do you? Jesus did. I'm with Jesus. I have no problem believing in Jonah in the well, by the way. We, this past week, we were in the Natural History Museum, and we were able to see some, some replicas of just skeletons of wells hanging from the ceiling that were just absolutely massive. And the others were recreations of, of wells, all different types of wells. And I asked one of my daughters, I turned to them and said, can you see daddy fitting in that whale's belly right there? And they were like, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> These things were massive. And seeing it on scale like that, like no, nah, there's no problem to understand that. And I said daddy can easily fit in that, that, that thing's so big. And uh, I know there's more details than that, but we're just trying to make a point. Here's the idea. Jesus doesn't stutter. Jesus is not ashamed of the Old Testament. He's not embarrassed. He doesn't get shades of pink in his face when asked about, do you believe in Jonah and the well? You don't, you don't believe in Jonah and the well, do you? He says the sign that you will get is not going to be anything more than Jonah and the well. Well, friends, go back with me. Go back with me to chapter twelve and let's review. Let's go back to chapter twelve and verse thirty eight. Let's review what God's word says about Jonah in the well. Because this is the only sign that's going to be given to this crowd and to some here this morning. This is the only sign that that will be given to you. God has providentially led you here. God has allowed you to be with us this morning. We we thank you for that. We're excited about that. But you need to hear the word of God and you need to see the good news of the gospel. What is the sign? No sign shall be given To them, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, going back to chapter 12, verse 38, again, we have seen previously, but it has been a while. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This is the second time that a sign has been requested of Jesus. But again, the difference is this is now the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is a last stop resort. Previously, it was just the Pharisees and the scribes, same group, same people, same posse. You get the idea. They say, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so whatever this fish was, whether it was the whale that I was joking with my daughters about or whatever, the point is, it was a great fish, big enough to swallow a man like Jonah. And big enough, we're not going to walk through history. I'm not here to preach Jonah in the well this morning. We're just touching on it because, Jesus, this is an aside in a sense. But history has proven men who've been swallowed by whales and still survived as a record of fact. Our goal is not to get into all that. But he just simply says this. In the same way that a great fish, he lived three days, verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation like who? Like the Canaanite woman who came to Jesus even last week, the Syrophoenician woman. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah the first time they heard it. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. What, what what is Jesus saying? Here's what he's saying: A greater than Moses is here. By the way, that's the argument Matthew's been unveiling week after week for us. A greater than Moses is here, who's come to save his people and to lead them into the promised land. Spiritually, the kingdom of God. Is here a greater than you name it we could start walking through all the Old Testament prophets is here the true and better David is here the true the best Messiah is here the final Messiah our elder brother has come to save his people here in our text the true and greater Jonah is here what is the sign of the prophet Jonah well then one last cross reference go with me to 1 first Corinthians chapter 15 and let's look at Paul's summary of the gospel we're not just focusing on Jonah in the well. It's what is Jonah in the well? What was that meant to teach us about the coming Messiah? Well, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so will the Son of Man be. Let's make a connection to the gospel message that Paul points us to and what Jesus is ultimately saying. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 5, First Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And what is that message, Paul? Verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was noticed, He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, Peter, and also by the twelve. Verse 6, And that He was seen by over 500 men, brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. What was the sign of Jonah, What was the sign of the prophet Jonah? What was it all pointing to? It was pointing to the true and greater, the true and better Jonah, who would come sent from God to live a perfect life. His name is Jesus Christ. To live the life that I, in my natural ability, want to live, but in my natural state cannot live that came to live the life in your natural ability that we would all want to live and we're trying very, very hard to do good and do right and break no more rules and never sin again. But we just can't. It's not possible. Jesus did. And he did it for us. He went to the cross and he died our death. He was buried in the grave and he rose three days later in the resurrection showing power and victory over death, hell, and the grave. This is the sign of of the prophet Jonah and listen if you're coming to Jesus today and you're wanting some fantastic fleece put your fleece away and rest in the gospel don't come to God testing him and questioning him just say Lord I believe help my unbelief he's not going to give you one more sign he's not going to give you anything greater than what he has already given you but friends hear the word of the Lord Look to Jesus and rest in Him. Do more than look. Place your faith and come to Him and obey Him and follow Him and experience the new birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. An unusual text, but an important text in the life and ministry of Jesus. I want to conclude with some points of application before we're through here this morning. I want to encourage all of us. We've been studying through the book of Psalms this summer and we have dealt with the difficulty of of the fool, the difficulty of unbelief. And I want to encourage Grace Church this morning and anyone visiting with us, I want you to know this. Your job, our job is not to convince. Our job is to simply bring the gospel message to bear, to share the gospel message, to articulate the gospel message, to communicate the gospel message. Why do people not share the gospel more than what they currently do? Many people, and there's many answers to that, by the way, but many people, I'm afraid, believe it's their job to successfully convince people of every argument. And I just want to tell you something, that's not possible. And Even the brightest here this morning will struggle at some point with someone trying to answer every question that they have. But I'm glad to tell us and remind us all here as disciples of Christ this morning, it's not your job to convince, that's the Father's job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But what our job is to do is to bring the gospel to bear on people like the ultra-conservative religious Pharisees and like the ultra-liberal Sadducees here in our text. The answer is the message of Christ and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our job is not the outcome Our job is just simply the input and the communication of the precious gospel of Christ. Mysteriously and beautifully, God in his own sovereign ways brings that message of the gospel to bear upon the conscience and the soul of man. Just think about your own conversion, friends, just for a moment with me here this morning. Why was it the 20th time, and I'm just throwing a number out there, when you came to faith in Christ, why was it when it happened? Why was it not the first time? Why was it the hundredth time? For some of you, you grew up in the life of the church, but you didn't realize that the gospel message was for you until you were 12 or 20 or 50. Listen, be faithful to the sowing of the seed and leave the results to the Lord of the harvest. You just simply pour out the seed. I'm speaking metaphorically here. Make it your goal to have an empty bag every day get along with the Lord in the morning and just say, God, fill my cup, Lord. Give me the leading of your spirit. Give me opportunity to encourage my neighbor or friend and my fellow worker. And as you give me opportunity, help me to be ready to sow that seed. But at least be trying. At least be attempting. But let me encourage you. Your job is not the result. Your job is to be faithful to the task. And that is to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to every tongue, nation, and tribe. Friends, we need men who understand the times. And Jesus' rhetorical question here, do you not understand the times? Don't let that phrase be lost on us here this morning. It all goes back to the gospel, but we need to understand the times that we are living in. And now not the time to be checked out. Now not the time to be entertained to death. Now is not the time to coast. Now's not the time to just simply, I don't know. But wherever God has raised you up and wherever God has placed you, whether it's in our marriages, in our homes, in in faithfulness to the ministries that he's entrusted to us, may the Lord help us to be those who bring the Scriptures to bear upon the reality that we are living. And pray every single day, Lord, give me wisdom, give me discernment, and help me to see not only the truth that is so clear in the pages of Scripture, but how to apply that truth, to everyday living, and not to ask of you anything that is inappropriate or unacceptable, but help me to obey what I know. Listen, it's all found in the word of God. Do you remember the rich man in Lazarus and Luke's gospel who was in hell? And he asked of the Lord to send Abraham. He's, he asked just someone to come and with the tip of their finger, cooled with water, to come relieve The pain and torment that he was experiencing. And then he said, would you raise up a prophet to go preach the gospel to my family? And what did Jesus say? Jesus said they have the word of God. Friends, the word of God is the answer to everything. Our job is not only to know it, but our job is to proclaim it, to share it, to give it. It is the power of God unto salvation. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we bow before you this morning. We ask that you would take this text and examine our hearts and drive us to our knees in obedience and faith, resting in the gospel and, Father, asking that you would use us as men and women who you, you've ordained that we, we'd be alive right now. We look around our world today and it's in mass chaos. It is in disarray, but yet we're hopeful. Why are we hopeful? Well, we have a lively hope that's rooted in Christ, but you've also appointed us to be here for for such a time as this. And so, Lord, we want to know what that is. And we just want to be faithful to the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary things of life. Lay down our lives for our wives, our children, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, just to simply, faithfully be a city on a hill, shining for you and for your glory. Or if there's anyone here this morning who's lost... Doesn't know you. They've not been born again. They don't have a relationship, and Jesus is not their Lord and Savior. Well, we pray that today would be the day of their awakening, of salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would lead them to come and, Lord, to have counseling where we could point them to Christ and show them the Word of God even further. It's in Your precious name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us as we close with, "I am not my own."